We um, are in this series, as Doug just said, about reframing things. Um, uh, one part of my job, that, uh, and I've told you guys about my job several times, I'm in the business of trying to figure out how people think, really, um, at the, at the, underneath of it. Um, and, and at one point, I got to spend three months with the military uh, in this really amazing place in Georgia where they do exercises and, and um, they, they, they fight these battles and they're real except that the bullets are blanks. Everything else is exactly real. All the exact technology, all the exact ta- tactics it is in day and in night and it's, it's, just, it's amazing. And it's, kind of, it's a secret thing, like you're not supposed to be able to be in there, but... I had to be in there because um, we were we had this robot that was going to be part of this mission, and just to keep everyone safe, there had to be someone around who like could hit this red button. That's all I had to do. Is like for three months, I just sat there waiting. It never happened. But the reason they sent me to hit the red button is because I was really there to try to understand how people thought about things. So talking to the soldiers as they were in, like, what would you be thinking right now in this part? What would you be doing? How could these technologies help and be of benefit? So that was my real job. But as I uh, really I just sat there and, and I got to see some amazing, amazing things. And one day I'm sitting in the, I sat in the passenger seat of this, uh, of this, uh, um, gator. You know what a John Deere gator looks like? It was a robot version of that. I sat in the passenger seat and then they drove me around and did all kinds of stuff. And, uh, I'm sitting in the passenger seat and I'm looking up at this three story building and the mission for the day was to get this sniper off of the top of the building. And it sounds easy. But it's not easy at all, especially if you don't want to hurt anyone else in the building. So I'm sitting there watching and I'm kind of fascinated by this whole thing. Like, how are they going to, this is, this turns out to be really hard. How are they going to do this? And I'm sitting there and suddenly this soldier plops down in the seat next to me, which is great because that's what I'm supposed to be there for. And he says, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's fascinating to watch this. And I, yes, it is. It's amazing. And he said, this is exactly, exactly what it would look like in real life. This is, this is exactly how it goes down. I was like, that's, that's incredible. And he said, except in real life, they're real bullets. And so this whole thing is not amazing. It sucks. This is horrible. This, you can't imagine what it's like to be here if this was real. And it's just like, you know, just totally changed my perspective on what I was sitting and looking at. It reframed it. I, I didn't see the same thing the same way anymore. Instead of just being kind of intellectually challenged by how are they going to figure this out, I'm like, wow, this would really be terrible. This would be no good if this was real. It reframed what I saw in front of me. And that's what the series that we're in is going to be exploring that idea of the scriptures being used to reframe. The scriptures being that guy that sits down beside you and says, have you thought of this? Well, no, I didn't really think of that. And that changes everything. The scripture is something that we're supposed to go to, to look for reframing, to look for how should I be thinking about this or that? And over the next weeks, you're going to hear people uh, talk about reframing the storms in life, reframing how we think about God, reframing the Bible itself, which is the inception one. How does the Bible reframe the Bible? That's Jeff Mickey. Good luck, Jeff. 
reframing uh, greatness. How do we think of greatness? And, and my topic is, how, do we, how does the scripture help us to reframe ourselves? How we perceive ourselves? What we think about ourselves? So that's, that's my challenge for the next 20 minutes. How does, how does scripture used to reframe how we think of ourselves? There's an interesting academic debate um, about these two parts of speech in the Greek language called implicatives and imperatives. Um, and, and, and one of them, implicatives are used to uh, say, here's who you are. This is, this is how God made you. This is what you are. And imperatives are, be, are used to say, and this is what you should do. This is how you should behave. This is how you should act. And for almost all of time, people are debating, how are we supposed to hold these two things together? Scripture uses them both. And, and sometimes scripture is saying, uh, we are great and we are craft, God's craftsmanship. And sometimes scripture is saying, um, you should earn your salvation in a way. You should, you should work. You should do these things. And how are we supposed to understand these two things together? And this debate has gone on. Um, it creates these interesting papers. Like I have a slide of a title of one of these papers. Reconsidering the Pauline justi- juxtaposition of indicative imperatives in light of his apocalypticism. <laughs> okay, I did lie to you a little bit. It's not an interesting debate all the time. Sometimes it just is lots of big words and people showing off. But get it out of the academic world. And this, this idea exists around all of us too. These, these things that come from the academic world still are true for us. We still interact with them. If we hold uh, the imperatives with, uh, of Scripture with too much emphasis, then we might be called a legalist or a pharisaic or wasting of grace. If we hold the indicatives with too much, then we might be called antinomian, which I'm sure is a word that you guys are throwing around at each other. You antinomian? Oh, but really you would say a cheap grace or non-biblical. And you guys hear these things. You guys, if you're part of the, the Christian culture, you hear people talking about each other that way. Do you ever read the comments at the bottom of a discussion on a blog? It's terrible. It's terrible. And I just get sucked into it from time to time. But it's, it's all kinds of people yelling these things at each other. You're holding this truth too heavy. You're holding this truth too heavy. We say it about each other. We say it about our churches. Some of you maybe going to Orchard Hill have heard Orchard Hill is a non-biblical church. It's a, it just doesn't teach the Bible enough. It doesn't, it doesn't teach our behavior enough. It doesn't teach sin enough. Right? That, that gets said about us. And then the opposite gets said about other churches in town. That church is too legalist. They're too un, unforgiving. They're too unaccepting. How do we, how do we hold these things? Okay, let's take it out of that world. Now we went from academics to that kind of world. Now let's just bring it right in to you. You struggle with these things in your head. Who am I? Who am I? Am I a sinner that's in constant need of saving? Am I God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works? Am I all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Are those really the right two choices? When I look in the mirror, what am I supposed to see about who I am? Or, Kit, let's go down one more. When God looks at me, what does he see? What do you think he sees? And this, these questions will shape you. 
They will mold you. They will change how you live and how you behave. And so uh, I just want to I just want to talk to you about my uh, story with these. I, I have had I have had times where Scripture has shaped and changed and reframed how I think. So we're going to walk through my life again. This is this is the third time in a row where I, I feel like I'm getting a little like opening and becoming a little too personal. And so I vow next time I'm going to bring impersonal scriptures to you. And just that was supposed to be ironic and funny. So we're going to walk through these kind of three phases of my life and how scripture has changed and shaped uh, uh, who I was. First phase, the first two decades of my life, I thought I was pretty cool. Mostly because I was. I really was actually pretty cool. There's a picture of me uh, from high school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you can't see it, those are Argyle socks. Okay, and I'm sure making sure you see them. Look at that. Don't you think he's like, hey, ladies? <laughs> wow. But the first two years of my life, I, I thought I was pretty cool. Uh, I thought a lot of myself. If you would ask me my picture of myself looking in the mirror or God's picture of me looking at me, I'm all right. I identified myself as a Christian um, for a lot of just amazingly great reasons. One is I wanted my dad to trust me. Notice I didn't say I wanted to be trustworthy. <laughs> I just wanted him to think that I was. Uh, one is that I had Christian friends. They were the people I hung out with. And so I wanted to be normal in that world. I, um, so I learned about and professed about Christian topics. Um, I had heard some stories from the Bible about uh, some awful things that might happen to me if I died and wasn't a Christian. So there was some fear involved. I, just, I wanted to be a Christian to make sure I had that covered. Um, or uh, I was in this camp, uh, an organization called Campus Life, a great, amazing organization for high schoolers in, in cities that don't have things like basic and chaos. Um, Campus Life, amazing organization that it was led at, in my time by a guy named Bob Dye, who was just an incredible guy. And there was lots of cute girls there, which was which was a big bonus for me too. And so those those were kind of it, the reasons I was a Christian. I identified that way. <laughs> That's, that's, that's for two decades of my, my life. The Bible shaped that picture, but, but kind of in weird, odd ways, right? Not, not really that serious, but, but still, it was, that's what it was. But then I get to college. And in college, you need to become more specific. And I chose that word carefully, because when you're in high school, you can just be a Christian. When you get to college, all of a sudden, you didn't realize that you had to pick which kind of a Christian you're going to be. You get to those first days of college, and you go through the union, and there's all different campus ministries that have booths set up there. And they're all saying, hey, come be with us. But what they're really saying is, hey, come be this kind of a Christian. Come be that kind of a Christian. And you, and, and you kind of don't even realize that that's what's going on. But, but, but you, you have to pick. You have to, you, you may have to pick a church. Which, guys, it shouldn't. But it still has this flavor, this idea of pick what kind of a person you're gonna be. And I had a professor in college who was in a class called the, uh, uh, History of Religion. It was, it was the hardest and most amazing class that I took. And he had the gall to sort of imply that if you're gonna call yourself a Christian, you should actually understand what that means. You should understand what those writings were from these amazing guys, uh, that, that throughout time have been writing these amazing things. 
You should read Augustine. You should read Aquinas. And you should realize that these guys are way smarter than you. And have thought about this a lot. And you should start to understand and then decide, what do you think about what they wrote? So, through, through that time, I, I kind of ended up picking, becoming um, a, a, a real Calvinist kind of teacher. I, I figured this was a good route because I figured my dad was a Calvinist. At least I assume he was because he went to a college whose name was Calvin College. So I figured that was going to be a checkbox for me. Uh, I thought the professor's descriptions of what these theology meant sounded really good and comfortable to me. Calvinists seem sort of intellectually um, oriented. That's a euphemism for these guys would just like to be geeky smart. Um, and, and all that worked out for me. But all joking aside, I want to say, this was a really impactful, important, and, and, and uh, amazing time of my life. I read and I read and I read and I, and I thought about what people were saying and scripture reframed how I saw myself. Scripture came and said, okay, you know, you, you have been understanding it at this level. There's a whole other level to understand it at. Let's look at some of the scripture that was reframing me at the time. And, and if you think just kind of straight ahead Calvinism, that's, kind of, that's where I was. Romans chapter 3, but really Romans chapter Romans, um, I could, I could set, use, right? But Romans chapter 3, listen to what the scriptures are saying. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Do you get the idea that he's not, God's not real happy? The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. It still goes. And the way of peace they do not know. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. We are depraved. We don't have it in us to approach God. We are, we are in a state where we cannot find God. And yet he goes right on to there, from there saying, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus amazing amazing stuff we are all in this state of our mouths being open graves of being worthless and yet through jesus we are redeemed grace is given to us and that grace makes us new makes us new makes us totally different people now we could pretty much go on through the rest of Romans. We could pretty much go on and read Ephesians and Corinthians and everything that Paul wrote. And we'd be seeing this kind of message over and over. We're sinful by nature, but we're saved by grace. We're adopted children of God. And this is a true and important message. And it's through a lot of scripture. And this this 15 years of my life was really shaped by, in a great, amazing way, by this message. I am not who I should be. I need the grace of God. 
It's a message that I needed to help un- uh, 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 overcome my self-centeredness. Right? I mean, you go from, hey, ladies, something needs to come and say to you, <laughs> you're not that. You're not that. You're not the center of the universe. I needed to, I needed to help, I needed to be helped to understand that God is God. And I'm not God. I needed the time to consume lots of scripture and read lots of, from theologians. And then, a decade and a half ago, which, if you have perfect memory, like that woman from Perception, you know, she, she can just know every single thing. Do you watch Perception? If you had perfect memory, you would know that 15 years ago was the exact time frame that I taught on last time. I lost my job. My mom died during this time period. Orchard Hill Church was going through what we call the train wreck, euphemistically, euphemistically now looking back. And I was on the board at Orchard during that time. I had a lot of time on my hands and I had a lot of things to think about. Who am I? What am I doing? What, where am I going? What is it meaning? Uh, and, and then there was, the, there was another reframing in my life. And, and I really want to be cautious here that there, there's not, this is not a change. This is, this is taking the exact same truth and seeing another side of the same truth. The, the, the Jewish scholars have this idea that there's, that every scripture is like a gemstone. That you hold it and you turn it and you keep seeing amazing things. Well, that's amazing. I didn't know it was there. That's amazing. Americans have a, a, a phrase called two sides of the same coin, right? And we always talk about, it's really hard to keep in your head these two sides of the same coin. It's that and it's that. It's both. Because that is so hard for our minds to get around. Holding two things together. I was at um, uh, 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 Natalie Brown's house. Um, and we were at a wedding. She was hosting a, a wedding and a reception. And, I, and I, it was in her house and there was on her mantle this amazing geode thing. I think it's a geode. It's like this big. And on the back side of it, it was a rock. You know, it's just bland, bland brown rock. And then it was chopped open. And on the front side, it was just like all this green emerald gem. You know, and it was, I wanted to bring it here, but I bet it was 500 pounds or something, right? But I wanted to be able to turn it, you know. Here it is, and here it is. Here it is, and here it is. And this reframing, for me, centered around one word in Scripture. And that word in Hebrew is teshuva. Return, repent, come back. When, uh, when Jesus starts his ministry in both Matthew and Mark, the first words that they record him saying are, come back, return, teshuva, repent. Matthew 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And here's what he preached. Repent, teshuva, return, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Mark 1.14, it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Teshuva. Repent, return, and believe the good news. That one word in scripture was exactly like this guy plopping himself down next to me in the, in the, in the robot and saying, if this were real, you would perceive it different. 
This word was like, whoosh, what? Return? What do you mean return? What it meant to me was, was, and I had been reading a lot of other things like it. What it meant to me was absolutely true that you are depraved and in need of redemption. But let me tell you one bit more of the story. Before you were depraved, do you know who you were? Before you were a sinner, do you know who you were? You were my precious child. You were in my head as the perfect creation. You, you were perfect. You were seated with me. And everything was like that. I made everything great. And the fallenness that you're experiencing now is so true, but it's not who you were supposed to be. So the story is absolutely true that you are depraved and returned. But guess what? The story has a third chapter that came before it. You were good. Then you were depraved. And then you returned. And, and you might be like, what's the big deal, Kurt? What's the big deal? I don't know exactly. But to me, it changed everything about how I saw myself. Because I was, I was always seeing myself as this person trying to overcome my nature, overcome who I was. And yeah, and Jesus is supposed to help me overcome. But for some reason, in my weird brain, it helps to think, I'm actually trying to become who I'm supposed to be. I'm not trying to overcome who I was, I'm trying to become who I am. That's the real me. The real me is the perfect me. The depraved me is a state that I have fallen into. <laughs> they call it the fall, right? So, uh, during this time, I was at a board meeting, one of these contentious hard board meetings of that time. And there's this guy, Carl Vanderkoy, and he gives me a book from the, the from Pascal. Uh, it's called Pascal's Pensies. And I, and I never gave it back. Later I apologized. I said, I'm sorry I stole your book. And he's like, no, I, I bought a new one. I knew you were never going to give it back. I knew it was your kind of book. And I don't know what that means about me in his mind. Well, actually I know exactly what it means. He thinks I'm a thief. But, and then after this service, uh, after the last service, my oldest son came up to me and says, guess what dad? I stole it from your library. I have it at my house. So now it comes back to get me. But Pascal's Pensies. It was the same time period. Pascal, one of the ideas that flows through this whole book is uh, that you are you are uh, deposed kings. That you that, that that Christianity is actually the only philosophy that he could find that holds these two things in tension with each other. He said most philosophies are either going to tell you you're great or that they're going to tell you that you're horrible. But Christianity is the one that says, guess what? You are horrible and you hate being horrible. And the reason you hate being horrible is because you're great. The reason you hate yourself when you're horrible is because you're not supposed to be horrible. You're supposed to be great. And the story of Christianity, he said, is one of the only stories that can pull these two things together. His exact quote in one little part of this book was, For... Who thinks of himself as unhappy because he's not a king, except a deposed king? If you weren't supposed to be this way, you wouldn't be unhappy about the, that, the fact that you are that way. A dog is not unhappy that he's a dog. You know, he's not sitting around saying, 
Oh, I just wish I weren't a dog. He's a dog. But you are unhappy. You are unhappy. And Pascal says it's a proof that Christianity is telling the truth. You're unhappy because you're not who you're supposed to be. Because you're supposed to be this other thing. And Jesus comes along and says, Teshuva, return, come back, be that thing again. Be who you're supposed to be. So you come back to scripture with that view, with that frame. And you start seeing things there that you hadn't seen before. Let's look just quickly at Luke chapter 5. 15, I mean. Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells this series of stories. I won't tell, I won't use them all. You know a lot of them. But just listen, just listen carefully. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one, loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 and go into open country and find the lost sheep until he finds it? Yeah, he does. A few verses later. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully till she finds it? Sure she does. A few verses later. Uh, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Give me half of what you have and I will go spend it. And you know that the son gets in trouble and comes back. And then his father says, I see him on the road and I run to him for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. What do those stories all have in common? There was a thing that someone had. There was a state where the sheep were all together. There was a state where the coins were all in the right purse. There was a state where the sons were in the right house. Then there was a next state where they weren't together. The coin is lost. The sheep is lost. The person is lost. Then there was another state where they were back together. Amazing, isn't it? I, I still have this idea that you guys are like, Kurt, what in the world are you so excited about this for? But I am really excited about this. Scripture has reframed how I think of myself. That I am this first state and that I went through this second state and now I have the opportunity to be who I'm supposed to be. All right. Now, I want to... Uh, uh, I want to keep talking forever and ever and ever, but instead of that, uh, I'll, I'll end that section. And I just want to have a footnote for you. Here's my footnote. That story is how God led me through. And, and there's this amazing verse in John. It says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand and fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. And what I hear in that is we are all servants of God and God is going to ask each servant slightly different things. God is going to tell each servant. God is going to lead each servant in his own way. And so he led me through these stages in that order. But that doesn't mean that I think that's the right order. Like that I, I was wrong when I was in the middle section and now I have found the answer. I don't believe. I don't, I don't think that. I think God was trying to say, okay, learn this. Learn it, learn it, learn it, learn it, learn it. You got it? Learn this. Learn it, learn it, learn it. Hold them together. And I think you might be, God might ask you to learn them in different order. He might ask, he might tell you to learn, you are amazing. You are my workmanship. You are my precious. You are what I want. You are how I want you to be. And then he might say, say later, but get off your high horse. <laughs> You are a sinner. You need me. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
I'm not saying that I went through and, and now I've learned the purer thing. I'm saying God taught me these two things and he's saying, hold them together now. And he may teach them in opposite order to you. And so you may get, you may get a chance to stand up on the stage and get all riled up about the other one. Right? But both are what we are supposed to do. And the even bigger picture, scripture is here to help us reframe. Scripture is here to help us, tell us who we are. And what you need to do, and what I need to continue to do. Look, it's been 15 years since my last one. And I, as I'm preparing, I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. 15 years, 15 years, and 15 years. What am I supposed to learn tomorrow? I must be on the cusp of something. And I'm saying, you need to be open. I need to be open. As we read scripture, for it to reframe us. For it to tell us who we are. We need to not think we've got it and it's done. Are you with me? All right. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father. Father. The one who wants to teach us about ourselves. The one who wants to raise us into his perfect creation. Thank you for these scriptures. Thank you for these words of yours. Thank you for all the men and women who have come before us, who have thought deeply and hard about them. I pray that we take advantage of that, that we use scriptures to reframe our views of all kinds of things, reframe our views uh, uh, of the storms of life and of who you are and of what the Bible is and of what power is and, and of who we are. I pray that we become a people who are looking to be, to have reframing happen. And I pray that we are humble enough to accept and learn. In Jesus' name, amen.